risk is a good thing. No risk means no reward. You're not likely to fail, but you're not likely to do anything new either. That's the voice of Vinod Kosla, co-founder of Sun Microsystems and one of the foremost venture capitalists in Silicon Valley history. I've learned so much from him in the last couple of decades. Perhaps the most enduring lesson for me is that you'll never get a breakthrough if you play it safe. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Vinod Kosla. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. Time and again, Vinod Kosla has achieved massively unconventional success, and it's hard to even know where to begin in summarizing his wisdom. I've learned from him in almost every conceivable dimension when it comes to starting breakthroughs, about hiring and team building, the importance of relying on the right advice from the right people at the right time, and so many other things that it would be hard to capture even a fraction of it in a single interview. So we'll focus a lot on my favorite learning of them all, Your willingness to fail is vital to embrace if you're committed to achieving massive success. Let's catch up with him and see why that's the case. Vinod Kosla, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, we're we're excited that you're on the show. So um, back in the, when the tech industry was sort of a countercultural, young industry, a lot of the companies that got started were pretty capital efficient, right? And you had the you had entrepreneurs leveraging progression of Moore's law and network effects to bu- to build these companies. Do you think that the way entrepreneurs build companies that they'll that they'll build them differently from how they did in the past, or do you think it's more similar than different? Look, the practical thing is there's no one way to do things, and not all rules apply to all industries. Right. You know, if you're doing robotic surgery in somebody's brain, you can't break things and move fast. Right. There are areas where you're discovering the right product. If you didn't break things and move fast, you'd be dead duck. In other areas, you want to get out and engage as early as possible, a lot of the consumer services. But here's the thing. Any entrepreneur who's lived through a startup knows Risk is like a -a whack-a-mole. There's always a market risk. There's a product completion risk. There's an engineering on-schedule risk. There's a financial risk of running out of money. Each of these risks is different, and you can often balance them. Uh, And you have to decide as an entrepreneur which risk to take in which order and how much. You could raise a lot more money, get a lot more dilution, You could spend it rapidly on much more engineering so your product spec is more complete, so your market risk is lower. Or you could go to market early, which generally I favor, and spend a lot more on marketing for growth. Now, that's a different risk. Now, any of these can be traded off by much more conservative financially and keeping a low burn rate. 
balancing risk across different types of risk is what every entrepreneur has to do, whether it's explicit or implicit. One has to recognize one's taking these risks and good entrepreneurs then trade between which type of risk. Look, if VCs are being splurging on money and investments and money is cheap, you want to raise lots of money and spend lots of it. That's pretty smart risk because money is cheap and you want to reduce market risk with it or you want to reduce engineering risk by having a bigger team. If money is tight, then you might not want to take either an engineering risk or a market risk, but go very slow in MVP product, incomplete products, test them in the market. It depends on the situation and the market environment and competition. If you're going to fail, then you want to fail early in a startup. And if you're going to fail early, you have to start with the biggest risks you can address. There's a set of risks you identify, new ones you discover as you go along. But the ones you already know about, you want to solve for the biggest risks first, even if it's not development in logical order. So take risks out of order. What really matters in a startup is not timeline on one axis and money spent on the other, which is the curve we all see in board meetings, but it is money spent versus risks removed yep. in, a, in a startup. That is the most important graph in a startup and almost never used. Solve the biggest risks first, because till you solve all the risks, you're not going to have a business. And if you're not going to have a business and fail, then fail with the least number of dollars. Yeah. Don't blow a billion dollar hole, as some people have done, and then fail. The other argument for taking out the biggest risk the quickest is that on some level, by doing that, you're getting to the biggest breakthroughs faster. Startup value creation is about creating a breakthrough that nobody else can deliver. And so if you could prove that right. faster, you, you know, your, your value escalates asymmetrically. And frankly, there's also, if a key risk doesn't work out and you fail at a key risk, uh, if you've spent a lot of money, then you may not have a lot of options. If you've spent a little money, you may have time to find a different business. Let's say you, you, you solve five risks and get stuck on two. Yep. Then you can sort of say, hey, how do I take the five problems I've solved and pivot those into a different business? And these other two hard problems, I know I'm not gonna solve them with a reasonable amount of money I have at my disposal. So let me not keep my head, banging my head against a wall. That's the moment in which you can pivot very successfully. Risk is a good thing. No risk means no reward. Uh, you're not likely to fail, but you're not likely to do anything new either. And you've worked so. obviously with some great companies, Vinod. Are there are there founders that you worked with that you thought were just particularly exceptional at getting this right? Yes, yeah, Jack Dorsey is a great example. You know, we were the first investors in Square. Jack had failed in five startups, if I remember right, when we invested in him. So Jack wasn't Jack back then. And, and frankly, back then, Twitter was a mess too. What Jack did really, really well at Square is get this balance between exploration and execution right. He put together one of the strongest teams under him 
to execute on parts of the plan. And he had people who helped contribute to the plan. Remember, Square started as a hardware dongle that plugged into the audio jack of a cell phone. And if I said to you, that's a $30 billion business or whatever Square's worth today, you'd laugh at me. Yeah. But Jack had a very clear vision. He wanted to help small business against the big players like Amazon. His tactics were always focused on getting to the next step. His vision was the big vision of Mount Everest. Like, mm-hmm. here's where I want to go. And he never meandered from his vision. I always say, be uh, obstinate about your vision, be flexible about your tactics. So in picking your tactics, which can be pretty different than your vision, and good CEOs, and Jack did this really well, do a good job of balancing the two. They will sacrifice the short term to build more assets for the longer term, but they're not saying, uh, day one, I'll be a $30 billion business. Like, what's the first base camp? And then what's camp one and camp two and camp three, uh, and then the ascent to the peak? So I was lucky enough to invest and work with Jack back in Twitter days um, where they were still arguing what to call it. It was either going to be voicemail 2.0 or TWTTR. What strikes me as a skill he has that a lot of great founders have is, um, you know, there's most people in the world, they live in the present. And so they project forward for the present and they get, they're uncomfortable when they're first exposed to a future idea because it's, it messes with their head. But then what I also find is that, a lot of people living in the future who have a good vision, they're, they're not effective at coming back to the present and taking the steps necessary to bring the present to the future. When you're a great entrepreneur, you, you're able to deal with this impedance mismatch, right? Between yep. living in the future, coming back to the present, and, and you know, you've got to be able to, to, to speak the language of both types of people and find a way to unify them so that they kind of all join the same movement together. That's really rare skill. Yeah. The best startup leaders that you've met and worked with, how much time do you think is appropriate for them to spend on recruiting in the early days? You know, and, and that may even assume they don't have any job openings right now to fill. Let me tell you my experience. The option pool for new hires should be unlimited. It should be limited by the people you can find, not by the option pool you have or the financial budget you have. I always say for the exceptional people, you should never have a budget. So it's like, it's not about how many shares you offer them. It's about being right about the fact that they're exceptional that matters. Yes. You know, the venture business is about taking risks and risks of all sides. The simple version is no risk, no reward. We've all heard that. Yep. And, and this is another place I find boards to companies a huge disservice. In reducing risk in everything, whether it's business strategy or hiring or other things, I find most boards, most people re- reduce risk and increase the probability of success. But reduce the consequences of success to inconsequential. Yes, totally. Risk isn't to be avoided. Intelligent risk is to be taken. 
this also applies to hiring. So I often recommend hiring risky people sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you, we've all run into, hey, this guy looks awesome, but he may be really a problem. You have to take risks, even with hiring, and hire out of the box, uh, because that's what you're trying to do with your company. You're trying to generate out-of-the-box dialogue and discovery of opportunities. And the flip side of it is when you make a mistake, admit it early, fix it early, and that's what allows you to take the risk. Seldom does large innovative thinking come from people who know an industry well. So one of my rules is if I can, I'd rather not hire a healthcare person to be CEO of a, or founder of a healthcare company. Huh. Very, very counterintuitive, but I've seen it play out again and again. Somebody who comes from the outside, and this now gets to functional, uh, to ca- personal characteristics of good startup teams, who's somebody who's a fast learner. So they enter a new industry in six months, they know the industry, you lose those six months uh, compared to bringing somebody experienced. But my pet peeve is experience is a bias. Right, right. Experience is knowing how to do things or the way things are done in an industry. And when you apply those metrics, the way it's been done before, what works, assumptions about what doesn't work, those are all biases that experience brings. And because of those biases, you can do incremental innovation, but not large innovation. Because if you do things the same way they've been done before, you're not gonna see a radical transformation. I fundamentally believe a company becomes the people it hires, not the plan it makes. Hmm. That may sound counterintuitive, but once you build an org uh, team, That's the product you build, that's the business you build. It almost always feels obvious in retrospect, but never prospectively to people. A long time ago, when we were tackling a hard area and we built Juniper Networks, it was because we did something I now call genetic gene pool engineering. Engineered the gene pool of a company to the risks of the business you want to be in. It's very easy to get lost in platitudes, like hire great people. Well, I've never had a founder tell me they are gonna hire crappy people. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to hire great people? And there's specific aspects of it. Let's start with the risks in our business, at least the ones we know about. Which company or team has addressed these risks. And if you shortlist a person or two from each company that's already dealt with that risk, for example, in semiconductors, it might be yield on a chip. In Mm -hmm. a consumer business, it might be growth. You start to build for each of your risks a list of maybe five to 10 people who have already done this, if you go after them and hire one or two or three of them, you essentially said you have the talent on board to address that risk. If you do it for each of the five major risks, 
you have the beginnings and definition of how to build a great team for the risks you have. But there's another aspect to a team. There's risk-based hiring, there's functional hiring. You need a VP of engineering, you need a VP of marketing, you need a CFO. Mm -hmm. But I find people over-index on functional hiring, but in putting together a team, you can do something much more important than functional hiring. If you ask the following question, which I've seldom seen asked, when you hire a VP of engineering, does that person make my VP of marketing better? You get to a very different kind of candidate. And though they may not be as good as at engineering per se, they will make everybody else in the team better. And that's hiring for people who generally help raise the right questions in a startup. I said you start your gene pool engineering for the risks you know. Mm -hmm. But most often, at least half the risks or half the opportunities you don't know. The other half of team building is figuring out how to find those risks or those opportunities very early. And that comes from a team dynamic, not from the best execution, but the best exploration. And execution and exploration are often in conflict and need to be balanced in teams. If a team asks really good questions of each other, it makes everybody in the team better. And it surfaces big opportunities or big risks very early and increases the probability of success and maybe the magnitude of the success. So then when you, when you talk about a precisely engineered team, it sounds like, okay, so you have some characteristics. You have members on the team who can take out the most critical risks, perhaps also help you achieve the biggest upsides, but also... They're, they're more like a jazz band and a march, than a marching band in that they make each other better and they can riff off of each other rather than just play their own sheet music. A much better analogy for startup is a herd of sheep. <laughs> Not in a negative light. Yep. Uh, when you see a herd of sheep, no two sheep are going exactly in the same direction like a marching band, but they are exploring at the edges and they go left or right it's a meander, not a straight line like a marching band, but they find the greenest pastures and they yep. explore at the edges while a marching band does no exploration. And finding the right tactics, finding the risks you don't already know about or some hidden opportunities you can pivot into are also critical functions. So the very senior team has to be optimized for what I call exploration. Only exploration is bad where you keep exploring new ideas. Only execution is bad. And the right balance between these two makes for a very good team that discovers the best, the greenest grass, the best opportunities. So I think of management as a herding exercise for a CEO, where the herd still finds the greenest pastures. Very few big companies were built on the plan they originally started on. And right, so this right. exploration function is as important. We haven't talked much about Sun, but in 1982, six other people, when I met Andy, had already licensed Andy's technology, Andy Bechtel Chimes. 
Sun Workstation technology. And Sun really stood for Stanford University Network Workstation. And he was a graduate student, and he kept licensing it to anybody who'd pay him $10,000. So when I first met Andy, he offered me the technology for $10,000. And I said, Andy, I don't want this golden hack. I want the goose that laid it. But Andy and I went after trying to recruit Bill Joy. And we tried to convince Bill Joy to drop his PhD, which he did. But it took us six months to do Bill joined six months later, and we called him a founder. Why? Because we had this large vision about distributed computing, not just another workstation with a Unix port that you could buy from AT&T and start selling. So uh, again, I tell this story because of the value of recruiting, how persistent we had to be, or I had to be to get two people to drop their PhDs. And then we went on to recruit Eric Schmidt in our early team, who went on to be CEO of Google. We went on to recruit Carol Bartz, who was CEO of Yahoo. The first 20 people probably started 15 or $20 billion companies or ran them. That's how much building the right team at Sun really helped uh, just a bit of anecdotal history. Only time I've seen a team like that assembled was at PayPal. Sun and PayPal stand out for the number of things they spawned after people left those companies. I just enjoyed really smart people like Andy and Bill Joy. I had no idea how valuable they'd be. That was just luck. And they turned out to be pivotal. We haven't really talked about something that's pretty tightly coupled with teams and team building, and that's company values and how you set them up. What's your experience with that topic, and and what have you seen the very best teams do that founders can learn from day one in their startups? First, to me, founders have to set the culture and the values. And the only time you test your values and your culture is when you have hard decisions to make based on that. You really need to uh, somebody in a position, but they're being a pain or unethical you fire them or not, is a values question. You know, it's easy to put highfalutin values on a slide deck. These are our values. You only test them when you had something radical, uh, something big or important you don't want to give up, but you have to give up if they conflict with your values. I'll give you an example uh, we faced last year in our firm. You know, we have a value system that says we'll never invest in things that are socially bad or promote socially bad things in society. Now, that's easy. That's bullshit to say. Last year, we had an acquisition where our firm would have made $150 million selling one of our companies to Jewel. Mm-hmm. We decided not to cash in on $150 million of profit for our firm because it conflicted with our values. I I don't know how many people would do that, but that's a classic example. It was hard to say, let's pass up on $150 million of profit. There's another aspect of culture. You know, people talk about innovation, but then they hire people who aren't focused on the innovation. And the greatest example of it is people who come in and say, this is how we did things. 
before this yeah. other startup or in my previous company. Well, that's a really terrible way to innovate. We did it this way, so we'll do it again. Yeah. Hiring people who go back to revert back to this is how we did it is really bad. And this is the kind of culture a founder can set. The way it was done before, there must be must have been a good reason. So let's find the reasons why it was done that way. But then reason from first principles. I think really good startups almost always reason from first principles and use experience or biases or the way it was done as inputs into this first principles thinking. And I think that's a cultural way of doing things. Related to it is the culture. If you're doing it from first principle, then the seniority of somebody coming up with an idea isn't that important. Because, you, because I'm a VP doesn't mean I trump your opinion because you're two levels down. Right. So first principles thinking, you you arrive at the best ideas with the most rational thinking process. And I think that's culturally important. And it goes against this more experience always wins or the way you've done it before always wins. That kind of stuff is cultural and it changes the rate at which companies look outside, explore like that herd of sheep and find yeah. the greenest grass or look for new opportunities or pivot. Or all those things become cultural phenomena based on the kinds of discussions that go on in the senior team. And this is where I talked about the exploration talent of the team and the ability to ask great questions. They feed into first principles thinking. I've heard you talk about this in the past. I think it's very motivating to, to people that most people can do more than they think they can do. Uh, but I, I think it'd be good to explore that for just a little bit to realize they can. I've often said that my willingness to fail is the only real thing that's allowed me to succeed. Failure's a good thing if it's intelligent failure, but not every failure is good. If you fail, you lose a little bit. If you succeed, you gain a lot. So it's asymmetric failure. If you take 5% of your market cap every year and spend it, um, and this first came up in one of the companies I was on the board of, and we were raising 100 million, 150 million got offered. And I said to the CEO, and the question was, should we take the extra money? I said to the CEO exactly in these terms in front of a very, fairly large board, we should take the 50 million extra if we agree to waste it or <laughs> waste it on 10 $5 million projects that have the following characteristics. If the $5 million experiment in new business fails, we lose $5 million which at that point was far less than half a percent of our market cap. But yeah. if it works out, this initiative, this project, then it adds 50% to our market cap. So yeah. it was almost like we lose 5 million if we lose, 
and we gain 500 million if we win. Yep. You, you assume it's going to fail, but you intelligently take these risks. But these have to be failures where if you fail, they don't kill the company. Right. right? And this part about thinking through what's the right kind of failure is seldom talked about. So I always say these should be small failures, some downside, but not kill the company downside, but with, with big option value on the upside. And by the way, the flip side of that is you don't penalize these people if they fail, if they're good at attempts. Yep. If one is afraid of failure, say social pressure to not fail, caring what other people think, not wanting to embarrass yourself, very often people convince themselves something is not a good idea to try because really they're afraid of risk and failure. And, and so they exclude the possibility it might work that through lots of small iterations and pivots and zigs and zags, they might actually make an idea work. Yeah. Uh, most ideas don't pan out as originally envisioned, but through zigs and zags and pivots and changes, they do work out when they do. So I do think being afraid limits what people try. And because of that, if you don't try, you're never going to succeed at something. I like to say, try and fail, but don't fail to try. Yeah. I, I, the other way I like to think about it is that um, risk is real, but fear is a choice. You can frame a risk and respect the risk in a way that you're not fearful of it but in a way that you take the initiative and literally take the risk because it's there for the taking. Yes, that's exactly right. I think everything we've talked about has highs and lows. We've talked about that, but must, I think, be balanced by two things, personal values and personal life. I don't think one has to trade those off. Some founders do for short periods of time and sometimes it's needed. But I find one can keep one's personal life in balance with, I'll say, the entrepreneurial life. And, and it can be done if one is very disciplined about what one does and how one spends our time and not fooling yourself yeah. about your priorities. What yeah. can be prioritized? And I think this is an important question many entrepreneurs face. Yes. Well, and just people in life in general, right? Because everybody, it's, it goes back to the platitudes. Everybody says my family's important, my kids are important, uh, my hobbies are important, but you are what you do. And yeah. if, if the time By is the way, spent, uh, yeah. for much of the 90s, I got a report at the end of every month classifying my time in 15-minute increments in 20 categories. Hmm. And I had objectives for each category, and I either met them or I didn't. So I had a category, for example, the number of times I had dinner with the kids when they were young. Yep. Uh, and my assistant knew that if I wasn't meeting my goal this month, she wouldn't ask me. She'd put me on a red eye so I could have dinner with the kids. And yep. then I was the one suffering the next day with a red eye. So... <laughs> uh, Measuring things, being disciplined about keeping with those are the ways to achieve this balance between personal life 
and uh, work life. Yeah. And, and frankly, this is where discipline and measurement and feedback loops matter. And this is where the difference between platitudes and actionable ways to do things matter. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks, Vinod. It was great talking to you. I think people are going to really like this. Thanks very much. It's always fun to talk to entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you.